please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, this morning we lift up our brothers and sisters at Community Bible Church in Sun River, Oregon. Father, we lift them up and we lift up Pastor Jeff Welch. Father, we, uh, we ask this morning as they gather, just as we're gathered, just as other churches are gathered around this city. Father, we ask that your word would be preached, that it would come from the pulpit with clarity, that your word would come from the heart of the pastor into the hearts of your people. And Father, that uh, your people would have hearts of good soil so that your word would spring to life and bear much fruit. Father, um, we also pray for our missionaries, Evan and Christy. Father, we especially lift up Christy as she uh, is teaching their children. Father, we, we pray that you would give her grace, give her patience with the children. I pray that their children would grow, continue to grow in their knowledge of you and in your grace. And Father, for, for us this morning, I pray that your word would be, would be clear. Father, give me boldness. Father, help me to speak clearly. And, uh, and Father, I pray that you would keep me from error. Father, I don't want to speak error. So Father, help me this morning. Calm my troubled soul. And Father, be glorified. Teach us this morning what it means to pray sincerely for your will to be done. Father, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In February of 1812, 23-year-old Adoniram Judson married Anne Hazelton. She was 22 years old. 
13 days later, the newlyweds set sail for India under the newly formed American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. And that's noteworthy in the history of the Church of America because they were the first Americans to choose to move from one nation to another for the sole purpose of spreading the gospel among unreached peoples. Seventeen months later, after a brief stay in India, they anchored on the shores of Rangoon, Burma, as it was then known. This is where they would labor for the rest of their lives to bring the gospel to the Burmese people. Over the next four decades, though Anne would not live to see it, the work resulted in a complete translation of the scriptures in the Burmese language. Nearly 100 Bible-believing churches and more than 8,000 new followers of Jesus. As I read this account several years ago, what struck me, more than the results of their mission, which were extraordinary, but what struck me was the hardships that this couple endured for the sake of Christ. Their first baby died at birth while on the ship from India to Burma. Their second child, a baby boy named Roger, lived for about six months and then died of a tropical fever. The couple suffered bouts of cholera, malaria, and dysentery. They labored for six years before they baptized their first convert. Then in 1824, the British declared war against Burma. All foreigners in the country were suspected to be spies. And they threw the foreigners into a vermin-infested prison. Adoniram was among them. They tortured him by hanging him by his feet at night, and they nearly starved him to death. While he was in prison, Anne gave birth to their third child, little Maria. Anne died 11 months after Adoniram was released, and two-year-old Maria died shortly after her mother unbelievable suffering. In preparing this message this past week, I was reminded of something Anne wrote after the death of their second child, little Roger, and it's directly related to this week's passage. Listen to this grieving mother trying to make sense of why God willed, and some of you won't like that word, why God willed the death of her little baby. Our hearts, she wrote, were bound up in this little child. We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw that it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little awe. Oh, may it not be in vain that he has done it. May we so improve it that he will stay his hand and say, It is enough. A few weeks later, still grieving, she wrote this. When for a moment we realize what we once possessed, the wound opens and bleeds afresh. Yet we would still say, thy will be done. Anne's use of the Lord's prayer as she agonized over the death of her baby is a model of at least one aspect of what it means for us to pray, your will be done. 
and we'll come back to that. First, though, let us review what prayer is and what we've learned up to this point in this model prayer, the, the Lord's Prayer. The definition we used came from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it is this. Prayer is an offering up of our desires, and I would add, out of a sense of helplessness, unto God by the help of His Spirit for things that are agreeable to His will, and that's what we're going to tackle this morning, those things that are agreeable to His will, in the name of Christ, with the confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. In this morning's passage, Jesus taught us to address our prayers to our Father in heaven. And we learned from John Calvin that He is not only a Father, but by far the very best and kindest of all fathers. And to strengthen our assurance that He is this sort of Father to us, if we are Christians, He willed that we not only call Him Father, but explicitly our Father. Then Jesus gave six petitions for us to bring to our Father. The first three are petitions for Him to act in His own interest, that is, for His glory, that His name be hallowed, that His kingdom come, and this morning's petition that His will be done. The last three petitions are for Him to act in our interest, our need for daily food and drink, our need for forgiveness, and our need for deliverance. That first petition, hallowed be your name, is all about the glory of God. As we pray it, we appeal to Him to make His name, His very essence in all that He's revealed of Himself, to be revered as sacred be set apart as holy. We want to honor Him in our hearts as holy, and we want to reflect His holiness in our lives. And we want those around us to do the same. The second petition, your kingdom come, flows naturally from the first. If God's name is to be hallowed, He must reign over the hearts of men. And that's the most basic idea of the kingdom of God. We pray that He reigns over our own hearts, and we pray that His kingdom breaks through and reigns over the hearts of all men. It is, as Josh taught us last week, a missionary petition. George Eldon Ladd put it like this, this prayer is a petition for God to reign to manifest His kingly sovereignty and power, to put to flight every enemy of righteousness and of His divine rule, that God alone may be king over all the world. And just as that second petition flows naturally from the first, so this third petition, your will be done, flows from the second. As, God king, as God's kingdom comes... He reigns over the hearts of men. The inevitable effect is that the citizens of his kingdom will submit to and will execute the will of their king. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The result of the coming of the kingdom of God amongst men will be that the will of God will be done amongst men. To understand this third petition, let us try to answer three questions this morning. First, 
what is the will of God? If we're going praying for it to happen here on earth, what does it mean? And brothers and sisters, we are in deep theological waters when we start asking the question, what is the will of God? Question two, what is the manner in which the will of God should be done? And question three, what are the implications for our prayers in asking for His will to be done? There are various aspects of the will of God, so how does it look when we pray according to His will? Question one, what is the will of God? First, the big picture. In one way or another, all things derive from or have their origin in the will of God. All of creation, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Psalm 135, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will, mark those words, and by your will they existed and were created, Revelation 4. All earthly governments and politicians, from the dictator of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea to the Democrat and Republican parties of the United States of America, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and He turns it wherever He will. Proverbs 21. The election of some to salvation and others to reprobation. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Romans 9. So it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on God who has mercy, Romans 9. And in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Regeneration of the heart, of His own will, writes the Apostle James Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Our sanctification is in accordance with the will of God, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His his good pleasure, Philippians 2. Even the suffering of believers like Adoniram and Anne Judson For it is better, wrote the Apostle Peter, to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil, 1 Peter 3. Man's very life and his destiny. Paul wrote this. Paul said this. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you. Listen to the way that he speaks. I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. James wrote, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, we will live and do this or that. And even the death of a single little bird only happens by the will of God. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground. I assume that means die. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, Matthew 10. Well, Ephesians chapter 1 is not an overstatement. God works all things, all things according to the counsel of His will. And the bent of His will or the inclination of His will is to the praise of His glorious grace. Everything God does is according to His will and for His glory. Here's a working definition of the will of God. The will of God is His infinitely wise propensity. That is, His his bent or His inclination or His proclivity in all things to what is supremely good, which in this case is Himself or His own glory. God's will is that which He purposes as His highest end in everything that He does. And from that, we can infer that God's will is singular, and it is one, just as He is one. God's interest is not a divided interest. The supreme good He wills in all that He does is one. It is for His own glory. Our God is jealous for His glory. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Paul breaks out in praise at the thought of this truth. For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11. And though God's will is one, the Scriptures reveal distinctions that help us grasp something of what his will is. And distinctions are important. R.C. Sproul famously said that it's the prerogative of theologians to make distinctions. And one of the most important distinctions that a, theological could ever, that a theologian can ever make is the distinction between a distinction and a separation. There's a, there's a crucial difference between distinguishing things and separating them. We distinguish, he said, between our bodies and our soul. But if we separate them, we die. Well, the, probably the most helpful and the most common distinction that we can make as we discuss the will of God is between God's hidden will and His revealed will. This was a distinction used by St. Augustine. God's hidden will, also known as His secret will, is only known to Himself. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And we'll we'll finish that verse in just one minute. God's hidden will, as Dr. Grudem, Grudem explains, includes most of God's decrees. That is, the decrees by which He governs the universe and determines everything that will happen. He doesn't usually reveal those decrees to us, except at times in the form of prophecy. His hidden will includes all things that God wills, either to effect or, if you prefer, to permit. In fact, most things willed by God have not been revealed to us. 
we are but creatures. We are finite and limited. We are time-bound. We have ant-sized brains. What little He has revealed to us is but a drop in the ocean of glorious things that He has willed for His own good pleasure. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Romans 11. The most obvious example of God's hidden will is the day and time of Christ's return. That Christ will return has been revealed to us. But when, Jesus said, you know neither the day nor the hour, Matthew 25. When or will I get the job? Will I find a decent husband? Will my son come to know Christ? As with most of God's decrees, these matters remain hidden to us until they are revealed in the events themselves. That is, if they take their natural course. When Adoniram and Ann Judson noticed a few weeks before little Roger died that he was feverish as he was sleeping, would he be healed or would he die? That was hidden from them, and it makes me wonder how they prayed. Calvin spoke of the hidden will of God in these terms. God's wonderful method of governing the universe is rightly called an abyss because while it is hidden from us, we ought reverently to adore it. We discover the hidden will of God, that is, what He ordains, what He decrees, when the events take place. The early Puritan, William Perkins, put it this way. This absolute will, that was his term for the hidden will of God, this absolute will of God is hidden from us till God reveal it by event. You get fired from the factory. Your termination, you can be certain, was the will of God. I don't know the specifics. He may have willed your termination because you were a bad employee. He may have willed your termination For other reasons, he may have new opportunities for your growth or for your suffering. He may be disciplining you as a loving father would any of his children. But what we know for certain is the big picture. Our Father is working out His goodwill in you for His glory in all that He does. In all he does, he wills his glory and he wills the good of his child as one of the means of bringing him that glory. But those decrees, once hidden from us but now revealed in an event, are not the main thing meant by your will be done. It's not the main thing that the focus of this petition is on, though they are certainly included. The main meaning is another distinction we need to make in the will of God. We have God's hidden will and His revealed will. His hidden will includes most of what He decrees or ordains to take place. They are made known to us, revealed to us when they happen. That is God's revealed will of decree. But His revealed will is primarily seen in His commands, and we call that God's will of command. Look again at the passage we read a few minutes ago 
in Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. Those things that God revealed are primarily given to us for the purpose of obeying His will, that we may do the words of this law. God's revealed will of command is what He has revealed to us regarding our conduct or our behavior. It is the duties of the creature to His Creator. We see the concept of God's revealed will in passages such as these. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 7. And Jesus' words, if anyone's will is to do God's will, you will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. He's not referring to the hidden will of God These are God's will of command. They are what God wills us to do as a means of bringing Him glory, which is precisely why He wills it. William Perkins fleshes it out. This revealed will comprehends both law and gospel with all commandments and prohibitions and threatenings and exhortations and promises and such like. There are two things for us to understand in this distinction between God's hidden will of decree and His revealed will, specifically His revealed will of command. First, the hidden will of God is always accomplished. It is always done. You cannot resist it. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46. And who can resist his will, with the obvious answer being, No one can resist the will of God. Romans 9. On the other hand, God's revealed will of command can be and often is resisted. Since the fall, we do that which seems right in our own eyes, though God may have revealed His will to the contrary. So that's the first distinction. Secondly, it is possible for us to protest or to dissent from the hidden will of God without sinning. As long as we submit to His will and trust Him when He does reveal it. I'll give a couple of examples of this from the Scriptures when we come to the last question on what this means for how we pray according to God's will. So that's question one. What is the will of God? It is His infinitely wise propensity or His bent or His inclination in all things to what is supremely good, that is His own glory. So in the will of God, which is one, we distinguish between His hidden and His revealed will. What God decrees is usually hidden from us. His hidden will cannot be resisted. His revealed will primarily concerns, though, His will of command, what God reveals to us regarding our conduct. These are the duties of the creature to His Creator, and unlike 
His hidden will we can and do sinfully resist God's revealed will of command. Question number two, what is the manner in which the will of God should be done? That is, how are we to submit to and obey the revealed will of God? Well, the answer is in this morning's verse. Your will be done, we pray, on earth as. And the word as indicates the comparison, as it is in heaven. When we pray that submission and obedience to the revealed will of God happen on earth, our desire is for it to happen in a manner, in some way similar to the way it happens in heaven. It should resemble the submission and obedience that happens in heaven. And how's that? Enter the angels of God. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word, Psalm 103. Let me suggest four ways that angels submit to and obey God. We infer these from what we know of heaven and what little we know of the angels. There is no sin in heaven, which means that submission and obedience to the will of God by the holy angels must be without sin and without defect. And we know that angels are ministering spirits that God commands. He sends and they obey. They do His bidding. And here's the manner in which I believe they obey. Angels submit and obey God cheerfully and willingly. Now, that might sound odd, but we actually think that angels have emotions or affections of some kind. We see angels gathering at the birth of the Messiah, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. We see angels rejoicing. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And we find unholy angels or demons trembling in fear over what they know to be true of God. You believe that God is one, James wrote, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There are other examples that might not be enough to convince you that angels have emotions, and that's okay. Uh, I think it's at least an indication. More importantly, though, is the manner of submission and obedience that God has commanded of us. Again, we infer that the obedience of angels is without sin and without defect. And what is the manner of obedience demanded of us? We know that it must be cheerful obedience, 2 Corinthians 9. It must be willing obedience, 1 Corinthians 9. Not under compulsion, Philippians or Philemon 14 and 1 Peter 5. And it is to be done with delight, Psalm 40. Number two, the angels submit and obey with priority. They put the will of God before all other things, whatever that might be for angelic beings. It is like the obedience of the psalmist who wrote, Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Note the priority. Above gold, above fine gold, Psalm 119. It's like the obedience of the Son of God to His Father. Obedience that took priority over food for the body. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish 
his work, John 4. Number three, the angels submit and obey swiftly. Many believe that this is why angels are depicted as having wings and flying. They obey quickly like the psalmist. I hasten and I do not delay to keep your commandments, Psalm 119. And number four, angels submit and obey faithfully. They always obey and their obedience is always thorough. They do not cut corners and they do not execute God's will in a half-baked manner. They are faithful stewards. We could add other qualities to the obedience of angels and to the obedience demanded of us, but those should do. Again, if you disagree with those, it's fine. Just put together your own list of what you think sinless obedience looks like among the heavenly hosts, and we'll likely agree on it. So question two is this. What is the manner in which the will of God should be done? Answer, God's will should be done on earth as it is done by the angels in heaven who execute his revealed will of command cheerfully, willingly, with priority, swiftly, and faithfully. That is the manner in which we desire to see God's will done by us and by those around us. So let's wind this down by tackling question number three. What are the implications of this for our prayers when we ask that God's will be done? What does it look like to pray according to His will? Well, we'll answer that from three different angles using the, the three distinctions that we made in the will of God. His revealed will of command, His hidden will of decree, and His revealed will of decree. And we'll take them in that order. First, in matters of God's revealed will of command. To pray that His will be done means this. We plead with God for hearts of submission and obedience for ourselves and for those around us. We pray that our obedience to what He has commanded of us in His Word would be God-glorifying because that is His will, that is His supreme end. We pray that our obedience would be like that of the angels, that he would glorify himself by granting us hearts that are cheerful and willing, and that he would give us a sense of proper priority in our obedience, that his commands would become to us as sweet as honey, sweeter than honey indeed, and that we would obey him swiftly and faithfully. A word of caution. This emphasis on doing the will of God, of obeying His commands, it can certainly be mistaken for a kind of will-powered religion, mere external form or obedience. That is not what God commands. His will is that we not only do, but that we delight in His commands. Obedience from a heart that is aligned with His will and for His glory. By definition, that kind of obedience is impossible for sinners. It requires a new heart. We need to become new creatures. No, the obedience in view here is obedience that flows from a renewed heart that has embraced Jesus by faith in the finished work on the cross. It is the heart over which God reigns. 
And it is the heart that hallows God's name. This is gospel-powered, blood-bought obedience that we are talking about. This kind of obedience requires grace. We call it the grace of obedience. Well, what about the matters of God's hidden will of decree? These are things that He wills, but that remain hidden from us. How do we pray for the sick baby, the presidential election, or the chronic pain that we suffer? In matters when God has hidden His will from us, this is how we pray this prayer. We must remember that He is our Father. We pour out our hearts to Him for matters that are hidden from us. We tell Him our desires. Father, I want my baby to be healed. I want a president, Father, that fears you. Please heal me. I can't live another day with this pain. And it is true that it may not be His decreed will for you to be healed or for your baby to live, but that for now is hidden from you. And like I said earlier, it is not sinful for us to plead with God for it. What's key is our attitude. We must have a disposition of submission to His will in the matter, whatever His will may be. That's why we pray, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. And of course, that is easier said with the lips than felt in our heart. We need grace to pray like that. And this is the great alignment that happens when we pray. You do realize that God doesn't change His mind, right? Your prayers don't make Him change what He's going to do. You don't force His hand by your prayers. That's not what happens. To think that prayer changes God is like the man who cast a line over to the shore and thinks that by pulling, he's actually moved the shore to his boat. No, in prayer, our will moves into alignment with God's will. My point was this. In matters of God's hidden will of decree, we should pour out our hearts to our Father. It's not sinful to pray, even if it remains contrary to what He ultimately reveals about His will. I'll give you two examples from the Bible. The first is Abraham, and we're not going to put the passage up there because it's long, and we'd take up too many screens, um, but most of us in the room know this account. It's in Genesis chapter 18, and we see Abraham interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's will was largely hidden from Abraham, although Abraham did know that the Lord was just and that he would not let the guilty go unpunished. Nevertheless, nevertheless Abraham prayed for the safety of that city. But he did so in submission. Listen to the language he uses when he speaks to the Lord. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? You know the account. No, it was not the will of God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham was right to intercede for them. He probably did so out of a love for his nephew and his nephew's family. But Abraham's approach was with a heart of submission to God's 
will, though he didn't know what that was. The second example is King David, and we see it in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The prophet Nathan confronted David for his adultery with Bathsheba and for the murder of her husband. In verse 14 of chapter 12, Nathan reveals to David that the child would die. So in this case, God's will wasn't entirely hidden from David, but he had few details. This nameless child fell ill, and how do we see David pray? David sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of the house stood by him and to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And we'll finish that in just a minute. So in matters of God's hidden will, His hidden will of decree, we pour out our hearts to our Father. We should tell Him what we desire, what we ache for, what we long to see. We ask Him to heal the child. We ask Him to save the soul of our daughter, to heal our nation. Our Father is a good Father. and He listens and He answers the prayers of His children. Finally, what about these matters of God's revealed will of decree, when it becomes known what God's will was. The moment David learned of the child's death, God's hidden will in the matter was revealed clearly. What is our response then? What does it look like to say from the heart, Father, your will be done? When David learned of the child's death, Verse 20, he arose and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. Note that he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. His servants were baffled. What is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. David answered like this, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? Who knows the hidden will of God? Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And what was Job's response? God revealed to Job in a single devastating day that he had decreed that Satan could sift him like a sack of wheat. He lost all his possessions, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, and all but maybe four of his servants. And then he lost every one of his children. And what was the response? Job arose tore his robe, shaved his head. He grieved. He fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1. He didn't use the exact words, but Job prayed the very heart of this prayer. Your will be done. That same grace that enabled Job and David to respond the way they did 
to the revealed will of God's decree is the same grace that allowed Anne Judson to pen the words I read earlier. She was probably sitting in a little hut in her garden surrounded by mango trees. That's where she wrote most of her letters. It was also where she and Adoniram buried little Roger just a few weeks earlier. She wrote, When for a moment we realize what we once possessed, the wound opens and bleeds afresh. She grieves. She's human. Yet we would still say, Thy will be done. That is the heart of submission to the will of God in those matters. May God grant us grace through the power of the gospel to submit and to obey and to cry from the heart for His glory, Father, Your will be done. Well, after we pray, Brian is going to lead us in a song that we have not sang here in a long time, but it captures this last point. It was written by a German, Samuel Radagast. He was a 17th century pastor, teacher, and hymn writer, and he wrote the lyrics for a friend who was sick. It first appeared in a hymn book in 1676, and it was later translated into English, and we know it by these stunning words, whate'er my God ordains is right. Whate'er my God ordains is right, His holy will abideth. I will be still, whate'er He does, and follow where He guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me, but I shall not fall. Wherefore, to Him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Let's pray. Father, it is just impossible to, to preach this sermon without feeling like a fraud. Father, help me to know how to pray that your will be done. Father, I pray that for each of my brothers and sisters. Father, we want your will your glory to be our 